God's kindness. Given grace, you've been given a gift. You guys still not hearing me maybe here today? I'll keep going. They'll get like you in a little bit. What's beautiful about this is this is not just a way that God started to relate to us once Jesus came or when the New Testament was written, but this is a way that God has always related to his people. Thanks, Eric. You guys got me here? We need to, but this would be better. Great. So again, this is a way that God has always related to his people, not just when Jesus came, but from the very beginning, God's been interacting with broken people by grace. And this is why we've been looking, if you will, at the gospel of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible and how God interacts with people with grace upon grace, grace upon grace. And Genesis is full of story after story of real people. Real historical people in their brokenness, in their messed up lives. And it's not trying to smooth it all over. It's not trying to put the best face on these people as the story possibly can. Rather, it's trying to show us their real broken lives and how God meets with them in the midst of their brokenness. How God shows up with his kindness and with his grace to them, not because they deserve it, but because he is so loving. We've seen this in story after story, but last week we saw how God meets perhaps maybe the most broken person in Genesis, a man named Jacob. And his name means deceiver, deceiver, Jacob, the manipulator. And he does a great job living up to his name as we saw last week. For instance, he has an older brother named Esau, and the older brother was always given the birthright, which is the second portion of the inheritance, a double portion. But Jacob steals this, if you will, from his older brother when he comes back from a hunting trip, famished and so hungry, he gets Esau to sell him his birthright for a bowl of soup, taking advantage of his brother in a moment of his weakness. But it doesn't just take the birthright, he also takes his blessing that he would have been given from their father, Isaac. Isaac, in his old age, in his blindness, Jacob comes to him, disguised, dressed up like his older brother Esau, with goat hair on his arms to make himself hairy like his older brother, wearing his clothes, preparing food, deceives his father into thinking that he is Esau. So Isaac gives him this abundant, beautiful blessing to Jacob. So it's not exactly the hero in the story, not exactly a guy that you'd want to emulate your life after. He's a deceiver and a manipulator. But what's amazing is that God still comes to Jacob. When he's on the run from his older brother who wants to now kill him for robbing him of his birthright and deceiving their father into giving him the blessing, Jacob's on the run to a place called Haran where his extended family lives. And God comes to Jacob in a dream. And he says to Jacob, I will bless you. I will give your descendants the land you're sleeping on. I will make your descendants as numerous as the dust on the earth. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to watch over you on your journey. And incredibly, all 
peoples in the entire earth will be blessed through you. And as you read this story, you have to wonder, like, God, did, did you get the right person? Like, did you send this dream to the wrong guy? Because this is Jacob, the deceiver, the manipulator. Every story we have about him is not good, not something we'd want to emulate. Why in the world are you blessing this guy? Shows us God's favor is a gift, not because we are good enough. It is by grace. This is where our story picks up here today. If you have a Bible, just encourage you, would you open up with me to the book of Genesis again? We're going to look at chapter 29, the last verses here of this chapter. Genesis 29, verses 31 through 35. A smaller portion here before I tell more of the story. Man, God's word is good. So again, easy to find Genesis right off the bat in scripture. Chapter 29, verse 31 says this. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. We say here in reading scripture, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. just want to keep up with this story. How did we land in this place? As Jacob is on the run from his older brother. He heads up to Haran where his extended family is living. And incredibly, he doesn't just find his family in this broad region very quickly, but he's also welcomed into the home of his uncle named Laban. And this is his mother's brother, Laban. He's found his relatives, his extended family. And Laban welcomes him to live with him and to work with him. It tells us, importantly, Laban had two daughters. The older was named Leah, and the younger was named Rachel. And it says that Leah, interestingly, had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. A lot of commentators question, what in the world does this mean, this word that says she has weak eyes? A lot of different comments on this. Some say that it means she didn't have good eyesight, she couldn't see well. Others say that she had sensitive eyes. They were red because she cried so much. Others think that she had light or blue eyes. There's a bunch of different explanations, but it's most likely that this story is showing us a contrast between Leah and her younger sister, Rachel. That Leah is not beautiful. This is an expression or idiom, weak eyes, that she is, if you will, she's weak on the eyes while Rachel is easy on the eyes. You see this? So Leah is homely, while Rachel is stunning. And it seems that this is very important because Leah, perhaps like much of her life, is overshadowed 
once again by her younger, more beautiful sister, because as Jacob is living among her family now, he falls in love with Rachel. He is amazed by her, falls in love with her. So as Laban is figuring out, how do we pay you, Jacob, for all the work you're doing? Jacob says, I want to marry Rachel. And Laban says, I will give you to her if you work for me for seven years. Now, quick pause here. If you're reading a story like this in our modern context, this is going to strike you as just a bit strange and more than that, probably a little offensive, right? I mean, is Rachel a piece of property that she's being given in exchange for labor? Does she have any say in this arrangement? This does not strike us as good. Why is this in the Bible? It's where it's really helpful for us to remember again that these stories that we're being given are not trying to gild over with golden qualities all of these characters or even these cultures. It's trying to show us the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of our lives. So it's not trying to show us God's preferred cultural practices or how we often need, how we should live or should emulate these lives. Not at all. These characters are not the heroes of scripture. We know who this is ultimately going to be about. So it's okay for us to recognize the brokenness here. But maybe a bit of cultural distance that we can bridge that might help us see that this bride price, while very strange to us, was often used in these cultures as a way to create security for this bride and her family. If this husband were to die or to try to divorce her, there's some security that this woman and her family would have in case of a disaster. More than that, sometimes these bride prices were a symbolic statement of the bride's pricelessness to the family, of her great worth to them. And so if someone from the ancient Near East, this culture came to our modern context, they might be very confused at our marriage practices and think we have zero worth or value of women. They would be very confused by us. So just a little bit of graciousness across the cultural gap in distance here. So Jacob works seven years to be able to marry Rachel. I love that it says it only seemed like a few days to Jacob because he was so in love with Rachel. When his years were done, Laban, the father, throws this great feast as a celebration for their marriage night. But when the evening came, it says, instead of giving Rachel to Jacob, he gives him Leah. And perhaps maybe in Jacob's drunken stupor in this feast, he does not realize the difference. He takes Leah and he sleeps with her. And it says, in the morning, behold, Leah. And he is shocked. He thought he had just married Rachel, but he discovers that in the bed with him is her older sister, Leah. And he is not happy about this. Notice here, Jacob, the deceiver, has been deceived. Jacob, the manipulator, has been manipulated. You get this? He's met his match in Laban. But he comes to him with questions, frustrations. Why have you done this to me? And Laban has this great explanation like, oh, don't you know that we don't give younger daughters in marriage before their older sisters? So clearly, I had to give you Leah first before you could have Rachel. And he makes another deal. He says, I will give you Rachel as well if you agree to work for me another seven years. 
just finish this bridal week with Leah, and then I'll give you Rachel as well, if you agree to work seven more years. And Jacob does. He agrees to work even more. But imagine what this must be like for Leah. That for her, she's just treated like an obstacle to be offloaded. Just something for Laban to get off his hands. She's treated like a trial to be endured by Jacob. You're just something I need to get through on my way to the real prize, the one I really want to be with. How heartbreaking does this have to be for her to experience? The only way you can get married is if your husband's tricked into it. How does that feel for your heart? And although Laban does not see his daughter's heart, although Jacob does not see his wife now, her heart, it does tell us that God, he sees Leah. He sees that she is not loved. The God who's constantly sustaining every person, every moment, who's upholding the universe and every atom in existence, who's seeing all things everywhere at all times, also notices this unloved wife. And he sees her heart. Love this. He sees her unloved heart. So God comes to her with his grace, but he does not suddenly make her loved by Jacob. Instead, what God does is he begins to give her sons. He lets her conceive and get pregnant. And the names of her sons, as we just read, they tell us a story about what's going on internally within Leah. Notice this story that the names tell us. It says that she conceived And she had a son named Reuben. His name meant see, a son. For she said, the Lord has seen my misery that I am unloved by my husband. And hear the hope. She says, surely my husband will love me now. And then she has a second son named Simeon, which means heard. For again, Leah said, the Lord has heard that I am unloved and has added this one to me as well. And she conceives again, gives birth to a son named Levi. That means attached. And she said, surely my husband will become attached to me now that I have borne him three sons. Do you get the heartbreak of this passage? That Leah, year after year after year, is yearning for Jacob's love longing for him to be attached to her, to see her, to appreciate her. And every name she gives to her sons revolves around Jacob. She is longing for him to love her. And it is not happening. Although God sees her, she's not catching on to that yet. She is still locked in on a broken, broken, messy man named Jacob. And it seems that she has placed too much of her value in Jacob. A great early church theologian, writer named Augustine, he would have called this a disordered love. A disordered love. I want to sit in this this morning. Augustine insightfully knew that we are most shaped, we are most shaped by what we love. What do you love? 
And he knew that if you love something of lesser importance too much, or if you love something of great importance too little, you have your loves out of order. It's a disordered love, and that will make your life miserable. You've weighted things in the wrong way, loved something of great significance too little, or something of small significance too much. It's out of order. So for instance, Leah here, she is right to want her husband's love. She is right to want and desire his attention, but the story shows us that something has become disordered in Leah's heart because she is miserable. She has rightly loved her husband, but taken this important thing and made it too important. She's made her heart revolve around Laban and not Laban, but rather Jacob and his affection towards her. She's built her identity and her joy on this messed up, broken man. And it's leading her into a miserable life. This is what a disordered love will always do. And it's not just in broken relationships. It's not just even in romantic relationships. We see that you can have a disordered love because God has made us to enjoy the food we eat. He's made us to care about the health of our bodies. He's made us to find value and worth in the work that we do. He's made us to care about our communities and our countries. He made us to love our children. But any single one of these right loves can become disordered, that you value too much or too little. And if it gets out of place, out of joint, it will make you miserable. So with our time, I just want to show two reasons why a disordered love will always lead you to be disappointed why a disordered love will always lead you to be miserable. So stay with me here. First of all, a disordered love will never be able to hold the weight of value and meaning in your life. A disordered love will never be able to hold the value and weight of meaning in your life. What do I mean by this? You see again Leah rightly wanting her husband's love. But it's not just this relationship that she seems to have made this the very center of her joy. She's made this the definition of her worth. Am I a valuable human being? Do I have any purpose? What is my meaning? She's attached all of this to Jacob and he as a disappointing human being, as we all are, is not able to hold the worth of her life. Again, we see this is not just in romantic relationships, but even take, for instance, many parenting relationships, that parents can be highly invested in the life of their child, care about them deeply. But at times, this goes beyond just having a healthy interest in your child's life. This becomes where you place your identity, your life on your child. Again, this is more than just loving them and caring about what they do. For some parents, this is that they need their child's success. They need their child's affirmation in order to feel okay about themselves. So, for instance, this is why you might see in a sporting event some parents yelling at their kids so strongly in the middle of a sporting event. Right? We've seen this before. 
And we know this is not because a parent is just so eager to encourage their child and to help them do better. We know it's because the parent, in some measure, has placed their significance on their child's performance. I need you to perform well because this is where, in some measure, I'm finding my joy. So I'm angry. I am frustrated because I'm not seeing the performance out of you that I needed. See how this goes astray in our hearts. It's right to love a child, but that love can get out of order. And that you put the weight of your life, your meaning, your worth on your child. This is why many kids are so eager to get out from underneath the influence of their parents. It's not because they don't love them. It's because they're exhausted from carrying the weight of their parents' joy. They're exhausted from carrying the weight of their parents' significance, their parents' need for love. So they want to distance themselves. They know they've been disordered and out of place. There's one person, one person who can hold the weight of value and meaning in our lives. This is the one that we have been made for. This is the same one who carried on his back a cross, who could carry on his back the weight of our sins, the one who's made us and the only one that's worthy of us. The only one that we can say, I will build my life on you. I will revolve around you and it does not shake him and it does not drive him away. There's only one and this is Jesus saying, I'm inviting you to come build your life on me. I can hold the weight of your joy. I won't disappoint you. I won't run away from you. I can hold the weight of your value and not be crushed by it like everyone else will. So a disordered love, a disordered love will crush those or the people or the places we set it on, except for Jesus Christ, this sure foundation. But secondly, though, it's not just that it will be crushed by our, our lives. But secondly, a disordered love will always disappoint us because it leads us to put our joy in what we don't have. Disordered love will lead you to put your joy in what you do not have. What do I mean? It's very interesting here as we read the story about Leah, what happens in the heart of her younger sister, Rachel. Look with me here in Genesis chapter 30, verse 1, right after the section that we read. It says, when Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. So she said to Jacob, hear this, give me children or I'll die. So Leah does not have the love of Jacob. She did not have someone work seven or even 14 years for the chance to be with her. She's never been seen, never been loved, and she longs for Jacob's affection. But Rachel has what Leah wants. Rachel has Jacob's heart. Rachel had Jacob work for her for 14 years. But you see what Rachel's putting her heart and life in? Also what she does not have. Each longs for what the other has. Leah longs for Jacob and Rachel longs for children. Each of them is placing their joy in what they do not have and it is making them miserable. 
This is what always happens with a disordered love. And it's not just the tendency of these two sisters in this story. It's the tendency of every human heart. When we even find what we think we're longing for, say, for instance, Leah was to finally get Jacob's affection. She was finally going to get his attention. I bet that after a little while, she would not find it quite as satisfying or amazing as she thought, right? She would find some other thing that maybe if I just had this, then I would finally be satisfied and full of joy. So a disordered love will always lead us to put our joy in some future moment, some future attainment, some future achievement. If I just had this, then I would finally be satisfied. And you see this whole progression through life. Say, for instance, you have a high school student and they're just going to say, I would be so much more happy if I could just be out of my home, out of the town I've grown up in, and I could be in college and have so much more freedom. Then you get in college, right, college students, and you think, man, if I just didn't have so much homework all the time, if I just didn't have any, so many classes I was worrying about, if I could just be on break or done with school, I would be so much more happy. You get done with school and you say, if I just had more community, or maybe if I could just get married, then I would finally have joy. And you get married and you think, man, if I could just have kids like other people, then I would really be happy. Maybe you have kids and if I just had more sleep, amen, just feeling that, right? <laughs> if I just had more sleep, then I could be full of joy. Then you go on and on. It's if I just had this less crazy busy schedule with all my kids and all of these activities, Once they're out of the house, then finally it's going to be so good to rest. And if I could just have grandkids, then that would be great. If I could just be done with work and retire, then I'd finally be able to rest and have joy. We kick the bucket down the road, always saying, this future moment is the place I'll be glad. Because our loves are out of order. And we're always disappointed with what we do have, thinking the next thing will truly bring me joy. Disordered loves are experts at deceiving and lying to us. Always saying, here, here, this is what you really want. This is what you really want. But it's not it. So again and again and again, you'll always be delaying your joy. You'll never be glad in the present moment because what you do have, you realize is not what you're really longing for. And there's one that your heart is made for who's saying, if you come to me right now, I will give you what you long for. There's streams of living water that would satisfy you if you came to me. And he's inviting you right now, our Lord, there's none like Jesus, who says, I'm not looking for you just to say some future moment, but right now by my spirit, I'm looking to be in you and to dwell with you, to have fellowship with you so that you could have your joy planted on me. Not just some future moment, not some change in your circumstances, but you saying, Lord, you are my portion. You are my prize. I'm so glad I get to do life with you right now. So even if I am in hunger or in want, if I'm in need or have plenty, if I have the husband or the wife that I want, if I have the children, you name the circumstances regardless of what's going on in my life. Jesus, you are my joy. And your heart says to him, right now, I will find my satisfaction in you. I will not be deceived into delaying my joy, but I will come to you in this moment and say, you're the one that I'm made for. You're the ultimate love of my life. 
my great prize and I will rest on you. Do you see this? I want us to slow down and actually examine our hearts a little bit. Where are you placing your joy? What is your great love? Has it become disordered so that something of lesser value has taken an ultimate place? And there's misery and a lack of joy in your life because of it. Sometimes it's not even just this ultimate one, but there's other values in life that we have shifted to too low of a place that can create disorder. Hear this. Examine your hearts with me. Listen to this as a writer, Brett McKay. Love he asks these questions for us, lays this out. He says, if you say you love God above all, but spend more time looking at Instagram than reading scriptures, you really love social media more than God. What's functionally happening in your life? Not just what we say, but how do we live? If you say you love your child more than your phone, but look at your screen instead of her face when she talks to you, you really love your phone more than your child. If you say you love your family more than your job, but keep putting in unnecessary overtime hours at the office, you really love work more than your family. If you say you'll text someone, pray for someone, follow up with someone, and then neglect to do so, you really love the appearance of concern, compassion, interest more than their realities. What you truly love is revealed in how you spend your time, allocate your attention, and make decisions. These, these cut me. These, these revealed my heart. But how are you allocating your time? Where are you giving your attention? It will show you what you really love. And perhaps is not this the wound in your heart that's festering, that's creating misery in you? You may say that you love God and value him most, but what is truly going on in your life where you allocate your heart, your energy, and your time? I want us to sit in some hope here this morning. The good news Our hope here today is that we are not our own saviors. We are not called to rescue ourselves, but we have a good savior who is full of grace and that intervenes for us when we're all disordered and a mess. Love in this story that again, as God sees Leah and that she is unloved, he comes to her and she, he gives her sons. But I don't believe God's just doing this as a compensation for the lack of love she's receiving from Jacob. He's not trying to distract her or just give her another prize. I believe God is trying to woo Leah's heart to see him as her true provider. Leah, would you see that I see you? Leah, would you notice that I notice you? that I'm your provider, that you could come to me to find your worth and your meaning. Seems that Leah begins to get this, begins to understand it, as you read here earlier this morning. Her fourth son, she names Judah, which means praise. And she says, this time, this time I will praise the Lord. Do you hear the freedom of that statement? Year after year after year, she had been trying to find her worth in a broken husband named Jacob. But now finally she says, this time I'm going to praise the Lord. And what you praise, you are loving, you are relishing, you are enjoying. This is where I'm going to find my joy. I'm going to praise the Lord. She looks to him. saying, I'm no longer going to try to find my joy and satisfaction in Jacob. 
I'm not going to look to him for my worth and why I have meaning. Instead, I'm going to see my true giver is the Lord. Freedom for her. This time, I will praise the Lord. I love that God is not just giving her another son. Beautifully, God is involving her in this great blessing to the whole world. As God gave a promise to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, that through you, I will bless all peoples on the earth. He knows he's going to do this through an offspring. That there will one day come a son who's the true blessing to all of us. There will come a Messiah who's coming to rescue the world and to set our hearts free from their disordered loves. This is Jesus who comes. And you see that in this line that leads to Jesus' birth, God doesn't involve Rachel in this line. He involves the unloved, homely Leah. Judah will be the one through whom Jesus' line is counted. Jesus will be a descendant of Judah, of Leah, in her unworthiness. And because of this birth of Jesus, there will be many who are led to praise the Lord. Many who find freedom and say, this time I'm leaving behind this idol. I'm leaving behind this dead affection, this dead-end joy. This time I will praise the Lord. They find their hope, their life in him. I want us to celebrate this with communion here this morning. So I'm going to invite the band to come back up. And those preparing communion, you can jump back there. Do that for us. Sit in this more with me. If you are feeling deeply unloved, If you're like Leah and you see yourself as the one who's always overshadowed and unworthy and forgotten, there's good news for you this morning that you have a God that sees you and your heart. More than that, that you have a God who has given his very self to bring you into relationship with him so that you might know him and find your value, your satisfaction in him. So I'm not going to look to my job or this relationship or this future achievement. I'm going to look to you, Lord, as the one that I find my joy in. For us to really taste this and to understand it, we're going to celebrate communion here today. I love communion because we can hear these words, but there's a way that we express our trust in God by standing up, walking forward, taking bread, dipping it in juice, and eating it. Because we're functionally saying, you're the one that I find my nourishment in. You're the one that I trust for my life. You're the one that feeds me, gives me meaning. So as I take in your life, this is what I'm trusting, Lord. So this bread, this juice, they're a symbol of the body of Christ broken for us and his blood that's been poured out. It's through your death, Jesus, that I'm finding life. So as you come up and receive this morning, we invite everyone to join us if you're trusting in Jesus. If you're still not sure, maybe just here exploring, I'm so glad you're here, but just invite you to hang out where you're at. We would love to pray with you more or even have a conversation with you. With that, we're going to have our prayer team in the back after communion. So if you'd like just to pray with someone, to hear more, share more, they would love to talk with you. They'll be back again in the back there. So as they have communion up here, just want to explain this a little bit more. They'll have three spots for communion. 
We'll have Paula, who's going to be up here at the front of this left aisle. She's going to have our gluten-free bread. So if you're someone that needs a gluten-free, please come up here to Paula. Uh, she'll have the bread and the juice for you. And then we'll have two regular stations on either side. So if you could just come up in these aisles and grab a piece of bread, you're going to hear that person speak, the body of Christ broken for you. And after you've heard that, you can dip it in the juice and you'll hear them say, the blood of Christ poured out for you. Feel free to then eat that bread in that moment or you can take it back to your seat and eat it there. But let this again be a statement of you saying, Lord, I see it's by your death for me that I find life. So would you all again pray with me here? Jesus, we want to be found in you. We don't want to rush by in another Sunday morning. We want to say, Lord, I want to give my heart to you. So Holy Spirit, would you help us examine ourselves? Would you help us look at where we may be functionally putting too much time, too much energy, too much of our life, instead of really being found on you? Yeah, thank you, Jesus, for your rescue towards us. God, would you meet us right now as we're singing this song? as we're taking this communion, that'd be a real expression for us to see your care for us, that we trust you, Lord. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Again, feel free as we're singing this song. This is just going to be more contemplation for you all. So we're going to sing this, probably a bit of an unfamiliar song for you. So as you get done taking communion, feel free to take a seat and just sit and listen to these words. Here, it's actually not in the easiness of life. It's not in the comforts, but it's really in these challenges that God's inviting us to find our joy in him. So again, take this song in, listen to it, and we invite you for communion at any point now. We pray for blessings, we pray for peace. Comfort for the family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our sufferings and all the while. way too much to give us lesser things cause what if your blessings come through raindrops, what if your healing comes through tears, what if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know your name and what if trials of this life goodness 
Sing this out with us here. 